This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Thank you very much for joining us today and welcome to the Explorathon Lunch Bites podcast, a chance for you to hear about some of the latest research projects coming from the University of Aberdeen while you enjoy your lunch break. Explorathon 2020 is a week-long programme of events being brought to you by the University of Aberdeen and other Scottish universities as part of European Researchers' Night, which this year takes place on the 27th of November. European Researchers' Night is a Europe-wide public event which tries to bring researchers closer to the public. And this week, amongst other events, the University of Aberdeen is bringing you a daily podcast giving you the opportunity to hear from some of our local researchers about their projects in a range of different disciplines. All events being run as part of the Explorathon 2020 programme can be found on the website at www.explorathon.co.uk and the programme is being funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme under the Mare Slodowska Curie Actions Grant Agreement 955 376. After listening to today's podcast, please let us know any comments or feedback by contacting us on Twitter or Facebook at ERNScott or use the hashtag Explorathon20. You can also put any questions or comments to us by email by contacting the University's Public Engagement with Research Unit at Peru, and that's spelt P-E-R-U, at abdn.ac.uk. Now I'm joined today by Dr Kim Walker from the University of Aberdeen Centre for Healthcare Education Research and Innovation. She's going to be talking today about qualitative research and its role as a research methodology. She'll also be talking about her latest project, which is seeking to come up with interventions which will improve the well-being and resilience of doctors during the COVID-19 pandemic. This work is funded by the Scottish Government's Chief Scientist's Office. Dr Kim Walker, thank you for joining me. Hi, good to be here. Great to have this opportunity to chat with you. Thanks very much. So when conducting research, there are two main forms, quantitative research and qualitative research. What's the difference between those two methods of research? Um, Quantitative research is basically Probably the research that everybody thinks and knows about is where basically you're looking at numbers. So quantity, that's how you get quantitative. So it's the quantity. So this would be classically if you were doing things like studies and you ask people to tick a box. Did you like this? Yes or no? Uh, On a scale of one to five, say how much you appreciated that. And so at the end of the day, what you do is get a series of numbers. And what you can do then is use those numbers to say um, very simply, it could be uh, 20% like this. Or overall, most people either really enjoyed or very much enjoyed this. Because what you're doing is you're taking the numbers, you're crunching them together and allowing you to come up with some figures. And people like figures and it's easy to say 20% or 80%. What it also allows you to do is when you get into more sophisticated uh, quantitative research, um, you're doing the analysis, it allows you the opportunity to do statistics, what they call statistics on it. So there are various um, sophisticated statistical tests that you can do to show whether something that if you've got a, 
a result of um, 20.5 compared to 13.5, whether that is statistically significant um, or whether, in fact, it's just the variation. So quantitative research is all about numbers. And um, you can look at it from that point of view or else you can do in terms of quantitative research, you can have uh, look at a big data. So uh, if you were looking at something like a medical school and all the entrants and how they did in their exams, you'd look at all the numbers and you could work things out and say, well, actually, this demographic did this or whatever. And when you report, you report all about numbers. Qualitative research, on the other hand, is very much about um, speaking to people. So I suppose the shorthand for this is quality. So it's quality over quantity. So in qualitative research, which many people don't really understand, is when you have a conversation and you have you meet with people and you discuss with them. So really what you're recording is text and words. So, for example, an interview like we're having today, you could look at a series of those. And then if everybody's asking the same question, you can try and work out themes and work out what people are saying. The big difference about qualitative research is that you tend to have much smaller numbers. And that's what everybody finds quite difficult, because in quantitative research, you tend to have large numbers and you can do you can do uh, the calculation to see whether you've got enough numbers to show a difference. Whereas in qualitative research, you might even have numbers as small as 10, um, which is very difficult for people to understand. But if you've only interviewed 10, how can you draw any conclusions? But because you're looking very closely at the text and you're doing a, an inquiry into what people said and looking at themes and following that, um, it is possible to get an idea about what's happening and to be able to feedback and inform. So qualitative research tends to be much more, is very much more descriptive uh, you don't have the large, on the whole, you tend not to have the large numbers, but it does allow you, the big advantage of a qualitative research is that it does allow you to go into much more depth um, and you get absolutely what people feel and say, whereas quantitative, you're only hearing numbers because they've just ticked a box. Does that make, does that explain yeah, it to some extent? Yeah. yeah. So you've mentioned interviews and text. <laughs> Um, can be counted as qualitative research. Is there any other methods that are qualitative? So qualitative is, is one of the beauties of qualitative research is that there's many different kinds. So you might have an interview with somebody. It might be completely unstructured. So you just have a chat with them. Uh, more commonly, you tend to use things what are called semi-structured interviews. So you know what your overall research questions are. So you might have three or four. So what do you think about this? Or how would you like to improve this in the future? Or what particular thing would you suggest to anybody going underneath this? So it's a you're asking the same questions, but obviously the responses will be very different and will be um, and can be sometimes quite long. So that's what they call semi-structured. Qualitative research can also be in terms of people who have like focus groups. So um, if you're wanting to get a whole group of people together and find out their views, say, about a particular course, so you could have different, different in, uh, focus groups with them. And then what you do again is you, you would tape the in, tape the focus group, get it transcribed, and then again, you look through about what people have said and look for themes. So one-to-one -one interviews, 
semi-structured type interviews or focus groups are usually the main ways in which people do qualitative research. And how common is qualitative research within the area of medical research? Qualitative research is actually probably more important in medical education research because I think everybody thinks about medical research as being something different. But in medical education where you're looking at education, you're looking at training, uh, there is quite a lot of um, theory behind what we might want to do and where we might want to go. And actually, if you use qualitative research in that, because it is much more detailed and you can get much more from it, that medical education is probably one of the lead exponents around qualitative And what are the benefits and challenges associated with undertaking a qualitative approach to the research? Um, the benefits are you get some really, really rich data, some really rich information, because the other thing as well is that you you can maybe ask a question and then they say something and you can carry on probing and asking further questions. So you can, if you're thinking about something specific, so if I think about something like, um, why did you not go, go, why did you not carry on training, for example? Um, why did you not carry on training? And somebody might respond, uh, because I didn't feel like I wanted to. You can then ask another question. So what was it that made you didn't want to? What were the positives? What were the negatives? And then when they answer that, you can ask them another question and another question. So you can get some really in-depth views and comments from, from the people. You can get some really rich data. Um, and so that's one of the benefits. The drawbacks, perhaps, is that you don't have so many, you tend not to use so many people. And some people find that quite difficult to say, well, how can you draw a conclusion? But if you've really looked at it and, and inquired well in the analysis, then it, and the other thing you can do is when you report on qualitative research, if you say, for example, I use the example of training, you can actually put people's quotes in when you're reporting the results. So um, they could put, the reason I took it out was I decided to follow my, you know, have a career break or I wanted to get off the treadmill. So very short quotes can then be put into um, your results or your report and it makes it feel much more real because that's what people have actually told you. Great, thank you. So in your area of healthcare education research, what projects have you been involved in the past that have taken a qualitative approach to gathering information? Um, I've been involved in quite a few. So just thinking about some of these. So just thinking the one about training. So, for example, it had become apparent that um, people, when they had finished what is called their foundation program, they then go into what's called specialty training. And normally you just move from one to the other. But as time has progressed, less and less people are going directly into specialty training and are taking a year out. So this was an area where the quantitative research had told us that less than 50% of people were going straight into taking a year out. Quantitative um, research told us where they were going or what they were doing. So they were having a career break, they were going abroad, they were doing another degree. So we knew all of that, but what we didn't know is why and what actually had helped them make that decision. So therefore, we used qualitative research by contacting people, some who had applied to go into special training, but equally some that had not, and then asked them, why did you decide to go into training or why did you not decide to go into training? What were your key influences around that decision? 
And then that way we will be able to find out what actually was influencing their decision. So if we wanted to change it to get more people to go in to, to training, we would know exactly what areas we had to target. So if, for example, everybody said, um, I just need, I just wanted to have a, have a career break or I wanted to be able to do something else, no matter what you do and change in the system, if that's the, the reason for doing something, then it's not going to change. So, so that's an example where qualitative research has actually enhanced and answered some questions from the quantitative research. Other projects, perhaps, which are, I would say are more likely to be qualitative. So, for example, if you are changing a curriculum or if you have um, uh, brought things into change. So one of the areas we're looking at um, in our department is widening access to medicine in terms of people who've done a course before they, they study medicine. So we've been holding fo focus groups with them so they feel, you know, more comfortable in, in a group and telling us what it was like and what was good and what was bad, what was supportive and what wasn't. And again, we then have the very rich data to be able to, to, to change things. This is a very small group, so actually quantitative methods probably wouldn't have worked in that case. So qualitative can give us some, some feedback. Um, other things are like when there's particular changes to specialty. So broad-based training is another example where we're using focus groups. Um, to find out uh, what what people feel about the course. So, because again, if you did a quantitative research, it would be, how do you find the course? It would probably be good or bad, or on a scale of one to five, make lots of people three. Whereas if you do the qualitative stuff, you actually get to the key factors about why it was good or why it was bad or why it was overall. And probably the most interesting one that I did recently was when I um, was people use lay representatives in an organization so when i was working for for nhs education for scotland we interviewed all the people that had been on the uh, lay people who had served on the committees and helped in the quality assurance and said what did it feel like being a lay person um what helped you what was difficult how did you feel about moving around? And then as a result of that, by getting to find out what people were actually saying, rather than just evaluating once they'd left, we were then able to change the induction and the support we provided to the new lay reps because the old ones have told us what, what was happening. So again, that was one-to-ones looking at. So I hope that gives a bit of breadth about some of the areas you can look at and why you might use them. So the important thing to think about is that sometimes it's on its own, it's standalone research, but sometimes it's answering a question that can't be answered from quantitative research. Mm -hmm. And you touched on the work that you've done in widening access yeah. into um, medicine. I would imagine that's been groups of young people, perhaps teenagers that yeah. you've interviewed because they're the ones that are making the decision to go and study yeah. medicine. Is there a difference in how you work with children and young people when conducting um, qualitative research is how you would work with adults? Yeah, and I don't think it's just an age thing. I think it's, you know, who is your audience? Because quite often as a qualitative researcher, you may not have, although you'll be aware of the subject that you're, you're researching, you're not intimately involved, if, if you know what I mean. And so, for example, it's important to understand that 
it's not just the age, but maybe the language that you use. So, for example, if you're speaking to people, don't necessarily always use, you know, acronyms or medical terms or, or whatever. And so it is important to 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 make sure that they feel comfortable when they're speaking to you as well. So sometimes you might do a little icebreaker at the beginning just to sort of introduce yourself and talk about it so that people don't feel self-conscious. So you not only have to think about age, but who you're speaking to, the language, whether they're used to speaking to somebody. So all those things. So actually being a qualitative researcher is quite a skill. Um, and now with the, the way we're doing qualitative research is mostly um, either through videos or on the phone. So you can't even meet them, you know, face to, you're not meeting them face to face, um, probably with somebody you've never met before. And if somebody isn't perhaps saying that much, you have to try and um, make them feel a bit more comfortable and probe and get more out of them. So actually, it's a skill in itself being a qualitative researcher. Mm -hmm, definitely. Now, moving on to some of your other research projects, earlier this year, you were successful in securing a grant to research an important issue linked to the COVID-19 outbreak, which is the resilience and mental well-being of doctors themselves. Can you tell us more about this work? Yeah, this was a very important piece of work because we, we felt it was important to hear what the... Um, what the doctor said. So this is um, uh, a qualitative qualitative study and this is quite an interesting one because this is using also using um, what I would call an extension of, of qualitative research which is also becoming much more common in medical education now. So we um, have recruited doctors at all levels from those that have just come out of medical school to those who actually had retired and come back to work so we've recruited them for um, for what for an initial interview, which was talking about, um, and we were actually particularly keen on looking at four domains: um, physical, i.e., physical safety, um, organisational, how they how they felt working within that organisation, um, psychological in terms of their mental health and 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 well-being, and also social because how you act or, or, or behave at work is obviously sometimes is often impacted by your your personal life. But when you have that interview with somebody, that's just a snapshot at what it is at like at that period of time. So what we've actually asked these individuals to do and over 80 percent of the people who we have interviewed have done what's called longitude called audio diaries. And this is an extension of some of the qualitative data qualitative methods that I mentioned before, because the ones I mentioned before were very much one-offs, like a focus group or, um, you know, a one-to-one -one interview or a group of people. Whereas now a lot of people are doing things called these um, audio diaries or longitudinal studies. So basically what happens is, so in our study, what we did was we asked people on a regular basis, we will hope to get weekly, some of them weren't weekly, some of them were a bit bit less often than that but on a weekly basis just tell us their thoughts how things were going if something major had happened at work that had impacted on them or what was working well or what was not working so well so that every week or every couple of weeks they would send in this audio diary to us sometimes they were just literally two or three minutes nothing very much they can just record them on their phone and send them to us as as a as an audio file we would then get it transcribed and what that allowed us to do 
was follow from their initial interview, was follow how things were changing. So because we were doing it during COVID and beyond, although I don't think there's a beyond at the moment, um, we were getting the views of these individuals about how perhaps things had changed. So for example, just at the beginning of COVID, a lot of elective work had stopped, but now elective work and, and other things, clinics and everything are now coming back into being and how that's affected them. So what that does is give you a long-term view about what's happening. And then actually, we've just completed what we call second interviews, where um, we're re-interviewing them again. And it's interesting noting the sort of the changes and, and talking about how things have done. So for these individuals, we've got a, a huge amount of data from when we first interviewed them during the time and now. So that gives you a whole different level of complexity. You can look at it from different, different angles. And also what you get is a sort of story or journey that they've been through. So it's a different way of looking at qualitative data. So you do still do the analysis, you still do coding and analysis. But what is interesting here is that rather than just saying at this time it was like this, what we're actually doing is be able to tell a story and say, at the beginning, most people felt like this. These were the key themes. And then as time progresses, these were the key themes or these were the important external influences. And now we can say this. So we've used this in, in this particular study, but audio diaries or what they call longitudinal diaries and studies are becoming more and more common. So just thinking about the widening access, we could, for example, follow um, people from when they get into medical school all the way through and once or twice a year say, just give us our views. So it is an area that is sort of the latest development, if you like, in qualitative research. Mm -hmm. And how did the doctors that were taking part in this work respond to that approach? It was interesting because um, some people were very up for it. Um, certainly some of the, um, the trainees who are used to using their phones felt it, wasn't, it was no problem at all and, and would easily do it. Uh, some people needed a bit of instruction on how do I possibly record onto my phone and send it to you? So that was purely a bit of a, a practical thing. I think one of the hardest things for people who are taking part in that sort of study is constantly providing the information. And although they were all very willing to do it, and some of them, you know, were very focused about doing it, um, for quite a few people, you know, we used to send them reminders and it was actually finding the time to do it, even though it may only have been four minutes or five minutes. It is actually that physical action of getting it out, getting your phone out and recording it. And do you do it after a day? And sometimes when I sent reminders, they would then just do it there and then because I sent them a reminder. Other people were much more organized and they would give me every single day and then send it to me every week. So I almost had a day by day account. And the other thing you have to remember is that, you know, so some of them would maybe send us one or two diaries. Some of us sent us 10 or 12 diaries over that period of time. But it doesn't really matter how often and how much they, they send us. And they also were in length from about a minute or a minute and a half to one that was about an hour long, where obviously they wanted to tell us quite a lot. So it's, it's, it's very variable, but it's very interesting and you get a lot from it. And when those doctors were, were doing their interviews, were they focusing on the practical things that were going on within their hospitals? Or were they also talking about the emotional impact of what was going on on them personally? 
we looked at all all aspects so we looked about how they were how they were doing in terms of working in the hospital or in general practice um how they were working but we also talked about their personal their personal health and well-being um how they were coping in terms of their their private life so for example some of them might have friends who were shielding uh some might have partners who perhaps were bame who were more likely to you know to get covid so we covered the whole the whole range of things and obviously you know it was up to them what they told us we would ask the questions nobody that's the other beauty about qualitative research you can ask the questions but if people don't want to answer it they just say oh i don't want to answer that or i'd rather not talk about that but all i would say is that usually you find that when people are having a conversation with somebody especially if it's a one to one conversation then um it tends to flow and and all the doctors were extremely extremely open with us and the other thing you find is that because you only in terms of the audio diaries what we were doing with this particular project was when they sent in the audio diary we were listening to it and then we fed back our views and thoughts about the key messages that they were sending us so they actually got some feedback on what they were saying and and quite a few of them said that they found that quite helpful it uh, was allowing them to reflect they would just say something and we go well what about this or have you thought about this not pointing them in any direction or telling them what they could do but just reflecting back some of their thoughts and obviously over a period of 3 4 months you begin to build up a relationship with that individual because you're constantly emailing and so on and so forth so when by the time it came to the second interview um for some of them we'd been corresponding you know quite a lot over the last last few months and so that relationship between the interviewee and the interviewer is particularly important and i suppose goes back to what i was saying at the beginning about how the skills of the of the of the researcher are really really important understanding the you know having some empathy understanding where they're coming from being supportive um and sometimes they can be very emotional and you know keeping them going through all of that so it is it is it is very you have to work very hard at it and it can be at times quite draining but also it can be very fulfilling because of the richness of the data that you get from it mm-hmm. and how many doctors were taking part in those interviews well in this particular study i would say that this is probably one of the biggest qualitative studies there have ever been in that we actually had 100 doctors who participated now if you remember at the beginning i said that most people talk about 10 or 11 or 12 um for their results we've got 100 doctors who have participated which is a massive dataset um and will take us quite a long time to um so we had a team of five um interviewers so um it was obviously shared out between all of them because you wouldn't have been able one person wouldn't have been able to do all of those so we had a large number what was been really good is we've got the whole range from medical students who finished their medical degree uh, you know graduated early and became what called interim fy fiys they were called you know who went in early right the way through the foundation doctors junior senior trainees consultants staff grades um and rem- and doctors who had retired and come back to work they were all very very open they were all very much wanting to 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 speak to us and the other very pleasing factor was that in terms of general practitioners um 
over a quarter of our sample were general practitioners and they're the ones who tend not to be involved so much in this type of research and yet we had a very high number of people who um who volunteered to do that which was which was excellent and the other great thing was we actually got somebody from every single health board in scotland so we've got the whole range from city to you know to the islands so it's a very very widespread um, in terms of geography, in terms of age, in terms of where they are on the con career continuum. And so it's given us a huge amount of information. And of those 100, about 80 have provided us with audio diaries. So that's another huge amount of work that we've got to, to work through. So in terms of a qualitative study, this is huge. It sounds it. <laughs> so you've said that you know, this work is still live. You've just conducted second interviews with the participants. What's the emerging findings? What key themes are coming out of this work? Um, I think the key themes seem to be is that certainly at the beginning when we first interviewed, which is when, you know, we were geared up for COVID and everything was, you know, uh, everybody was in lockdown and um, all elective work had been cancelled and, uh, and clinics are being cancelled and there was this huge a lot of people were redeployed and everybody was geared up for this pandemic and I won't say the adrenaline was there but you know everybody was you know we must do our job we must you know deal with this and everybody was geared up and ready for this um, and then of course luckily or fortunately it wasn't as you know as large and as being in up here in Scotland as it has you know was elsewhere. So we didn't have you know quite the same number of cases or the same number of same number of issues. I mean there were some positives from um, from this. So people rethought about how they would work and and so on and so forth. Then as time went on and we realised that we were coming out of this and maybe we weren't going to have so many, then and we started to they started talking, you know, organizations were getting back to, you know, having, you know, getting people into hospital, being able to be referred. Then um so I won't say it's a new norm, but everybody's having to work in a different way. So although we're getting back to doing what you might call, I won't say routine work, but the sort of the ordinary work is that but it's just not the same so we haven't returned to normal and when we don't think we have the message is they don't think they are ever going to return to normal so everybody's having to rethink about how they work how they manage their lists um, even if you're operating you can only operate on far less people because you have to allow time for between the operations for cleaning everybody's in ppe which means things take a lot longer so um, so that was quite stressful in terms of trying to think about how they would work in a new way with all these other restrictions. And now, of course, that um, the number of COVID cases are beginning to rise again and lots of people are, are now having to be treated for that. And yet we're still we haven't stopped it. The NHS hasn't stopped. It's carried on you know, quite rightly, some people say, but then you've got intense pressure because you've got to carry on doing this, but dealing with extra people who've gone to COVID. And one of the issues has been, of course, is that a lot of people didn't contact their GP or didn't contact, didn't get referred 
during that time. And although there was lots of, you know, clapping for the NHS and the rainbows, now people are saying, well, you know, I need to, um, they're going back to their GP, but maybe with symptoms that they hadn't reported before, even though GP surgeries were always open. People are now waiting to be referred, but because there are so many people, there's a bit of a backlog, you know, waiting lists are longer. So I think there's a bit of frustration from everybody about how we're going to manage patient expectations, how we're going to work in the future, given that we've got all the constraints. And, you know, people are now having to self-isolate before they can come in. They still can't bring that many people. So the NHS is, is, is working, but in a very different way. And that's not what a lot of people have trained to work in one way. And suddenly they're having to work in another way and how they're dealing with that. And uncertainty brings stress. That's the biggest stressor on life is uncertainty. And so while we've still got uncertainty, that is quite stressful for everybody, not only in terms of how they work, but dealing with patients' perceptions and actually how they can go forward. And what has been the feedback from the NHS health boards on your work? Have they had sight of your emerging themes and trends? Um, at the moment, um, we're just in the process of finalising it. So we have come up with some ideas of interventions about what might help people. So and we're piloting some of those. So some of those are things like um, making sure that staff have these R&R spaces uh, where they can just go and have a, you know, get away from um, the patients and staff and maybe just take 10 minutes to just, you know, um, regroup before they go back especially when things have been difficult about accessing informal psychological support which was around available a lot during um covid but perhaps isn't as freely available now because the people who are delivering it have gone back to to their to their other jobs about making the staff feel valued and that their voice counts um, and making sure that they know where the resources are. So we're just in the process of writing all that up and working all that up. And so our results um, will be coming out very shortly. We have been very fortunate in that the um, Chief Scientist Office has funded all of this research. And obviously a report is going back to them in the first instance. But we will be going back to the boards in the next month or so with what people have told us, what our key messages are. And hopefully they'll be able to take that on board and think about how they might be able to support their staff going forward. So you've touched on sharing your work for this stage of the work. Is there going to be any future stages of, of research linked to this project? Are you going to be doing further interviews or qualitative research? Well, the good news story is that we've managed to um, get some more money from um, through the Scottish Medical Education Research Consortium, SMERT, based at NES. So we've been given funding to support this research till the end of March. So what that means is that um, it will give us a bit more time to analyse all the data that we have because as you can understand we've got so much data at the moment um, it's going to take us quite a while to get through all of that um, and it, what we hope to do is to re-interview our participants in the spring of 2021 because then that will be a year since we first um, COVID first started in the lockdown and so what that will do is give us a, a massive database so we'll have the first interviews we'll have the audio diaries we'll have the second interview and then we will have a third interview in the spring one year on saying so what's the story now are things the same are things different 
Have you changed what you're doing? Has your work-life balance changed? How's your mental health? How is the work? Are things different? Have things changed? And that will give us um, a very good idea about what's happened. Because interestingly enough, when we looked at the literature to see what interventions have been used in the past in pandemics, the um, evidence base and in the literature, there is very little. There's some prospective studies, but very little about how to what to do, um, what interventions to do in a pandemic. So the, probably the most important thing from this is that we have an evidence base saying this is what people have told us, this is what they've learned, we've put in some interventions and this is what has helped. And therefore we have got an evidence base that so if there's another pandemic or this one continues for a long period of time, that actually the interventions and what needs to help people is based on evidence rather than just people deciding for themselves what they think best. And what do you hope the wider impact of this research will be? The wider impact we very much hope is that the staff, although we've done the, the project on, on doctors because we had to contain it to some extent, and as it is, we've got a big data set, but a lot of the messages are true for all NHS staff and perhaps social care as well. And so we hope the messages are by showing what our findings are and saying that if you're going to have a happy and, and a workforce that feel valued, these are the things that need to be put in place to make sure that happens. And if you have a workforce that feel valued um, and um, feel that they've got a voice in that organisation and that people are listening, then um, those organisations will thrive and that will ultimately lead to much better patient care. Exactly. At the end of the day, it always has to be correct. Yeah. Care. Ultimately, that's what it's all about is, you know, you have a good, happy workforce, then obviously that leads to, to better patient care. Well, thank you very much for this really interesting interview. Um, thank you very much for joining me, Dr. Kim Walker, and I wish you the best of luck for your research moving forward. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. But for now, thanks for joining us. And keep an eye out for our other Explorathon Lunch Bites podcasts. As I said at the beginning, we'd love to get your comments and feedback. So please use the hashtag Explorathon20 or tag us on Twitter or Facebook at ERN Scott. You can also email the university's public engagement with research unit by emailing peru at ebdn.ac.uk. If you're interested in finding out about the other events taking place as part of Explorathon 2020, you can visit the website at www.explorathon.co.uk. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.